Welcome to Who Says No, the NBA podcast where we only talk about trades because that's what the monsters want us to talk about. Um, Colin Ward-Henninger is not here today. He is off for this weekend. He's enjoying his holiday, but we found a fantastic replacement. Joining me today, fellow CBS sports reporter, the NBA's best Canadian import, James Herbert. James, how are you doing? Wow, that is high praise. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I considered going with Maple Woj, but I didn't know how you'd feel about that. Like, if I were going to give you the Maple Blank moniker, who are you taking? I don't. I mean, that if you said Maple Woj, it would just be wrong. Like, I don't break news. Like, I'm, I like never. Like, that is not my deal. Um, but I mean, if if you want to go with that, like as a compliment, I'll take it. But like, that's <laughs> I, I just don't think it's particularly accurate. So I considered Maple Lowe, but the problem is, like, I've met Zach Lowe, you introduced us, so he's like a real person in my mind, so it's hard for me to just compare two people that I've actually met. I've never met Woj, he's still pretty mythical in my head, so that's what I'm going with, but you're right, it would be Maple, insert great features writer here, so (laughs) we'll figure that out down the line, hopefully you'll be on many times and we can hammer down the comparison, but... I digress. Today, we are going to talk about Twitter's favorite trade target, the guy who has basically been, it has to be millions of fake trades by now since he's been drafted, Aaron Gordon. Mm -hmm. So I just, before we get too deep into Aaron Gordon, I want to start by just talking about the magic. And you did an interview in 2017 with the two guys running their front office, Jeff Weltman and John Hammond. And there was something really interesting about that interview to me, which was they drew two comparisons to the sort of process that they wanted to take that I guess are kind of unusual as far as like a front office blueprint. They brought up the Raptors, which um, Jeff Waltman came from, and the 2004 Pistons, where John Hammond was the assistant GM. And I think that's a really interesting place to start because that's a pretty unusual comparison, right? When you think about championship teams, you think about the very basic we drafted LeBron James, we drafted Tim Duncan model. Those teams were not like that. And simultaneously, that's, you know, kind of, it makes it easier because you don't have to have LeBron. You don't have to have Tim Duncan. Most teams don't have those guys. But it's also kind of aspirational because you have to do all of these things that teams that draft LeBron or draft Tim Duncan don't have to do. You have to nail a pick outside of the top five, which the Raptors did. They got DeMar DeRozan. The Pistons did. They got Tayshaun Prince. You have to find an all-star somewhere on the fringes. The the Pistons did that with Chauncey Billups. The Raptors did that with Kyle Lowry. And then you cannot miss on any of the small stuff. The Pistons didn't, and they won a championship. The Raptors, they made one pretty big mistake with Damari Carroll, but for the most part, were great on the fringes. The Magic have kind of done these things, but not really. Like, Jonathan Isaac, you'd have to say you're pretty happy with him when he's healthy, as far as a non-top five pick goes. They took their home run swing on the fringes with Markel Fultz. Their fringe moves we can kind of get to have not been great. But having done this interview three years ago now, how do you feel that they've gone across this process? Like, where do you think they are compared to where they thought they'd be at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, going back and looking at that story, which honestly I would have had no real reason to do if not for knowing we were going to talk about Eric Gordon today. Um I remember like those conversations with those two guys and just sort of like the story around the team was like, all right, like they have a new front office, but they're not, they haven't really done much. And like, let's see, like, what is their plan? Like, are they going to change the coach? Are they going to, 
um, you know, basically sell all the parts off? Are they going to do a, a full on rebuild? What sort of tweaks are they going to make? When are they going to make this roster sort of their own? Um, and th- that moment was kind of them saying, like, I don't know the answer to these questions. And we don't really have a like specific big vision to sell you other than, you know, they talked about wanting to build a culture where guys play really hard. They talked about these kind of, you know, like sort of this this patient approach that they wanted to have, that they didn't want to come in there and do a million things. They wanted to evaluate, you know, the staff that, that they were inheriting. They wanted to evaluate the players that they were inherit inheriting if there was a move that made sense they would do it but they were going to kind of do things at their own pace um and i thought those comparisons that they brought up were interesting um but if you just kind of keep going forever um not picking a lane so to speak like not saying we're going all in now and also not saying we're going to blow this thing up um, then you can end up where the magic have been for the past few years, which is like riding the proverbial treadmill of mediocrity and being, you know, a seventh or eighth seed and winning one game in the first round. And that's kind of it. And, you know, it, it's not as if the team now doesn't have guys with upside. They do. They have some young players that can improve. But I think if you ask most people about the magic, like you don't get strong opinions. It's just like, yeah, they're, they're OK. Like they're fine. Um, but I don't think they're particularly relevant. And like, frankly, if you were to tell me back then that we would be having this conversation in like the first day of 2021, um, and so many of these pieces are still there and the team is kind of in a similar place to where it was then, uh, I would have been surprised. Like, there's no way that I thought they would take this long, um, to kind of pick a few guys, especially because in the intervening years, it's like they went from, you know, all right, they drafted Jonathan Isaac. Um, how is this going to work? Like the other shoe has to drop at some point. They're not just going to keep going with Isaac, Gordon, and Vooch. And they just have. And injuries have complicated that. Rarely have all three of those guys actually been healthy at the same time. Um, but, you know, they had opportunities to, you know, trade Terrence Ross, trade Vucevic, trade even a guy like DJ Augustine, who they just let walk in the summer uh, trade Evan Fournier, all this stuff. And and they just kind of didn't do it. And I don't think for the most part, we can definitively look at any of these things and say like, well, that was an absolute mistake. They really like messed up this one. Um, I think, you know, the Bomba pick is probably the closest thing to, you know, this looks like a mistake, but I mean, he is still incredibly young and he has shown some level of development. Uh, we just haven't seen him play in a while. Uh, so while you can't point to any huge screw ups, it's kind of like the previous regime that they were replacing. Like they they made a bunch of good draft picks, uh, but it never coalesced into a good actual team. And this is a better team, but the upside that was kind of represented by some of the draft picks that they had in the past like that is sort of gone. So um, we're in this weird place where I don't think most people outside of Orlando really care much about the magic. Uh, aside from, you know, when are they going to make a trade? Can we get this guy or that other guy off of their roster? And Aaron Gordon is sort of the poster boy for all of those conversations because I've had conversations with friends of mine who root for different teams about how their team could potentially get Aaron Gordon for literal years. And we are still in that exact same place.
So they're kind of the ultimate inertia team, right? I mean, it seems from an ownership perspective that they've always been a playoff mandate team. Like you have a decent roster, get that team into the playoffs. Let's get our two games of our two home games, our gate revenue from that. And we'll move on from there. So trivia question, how many trades in total in the three years they've been running this team? Do you think Weltman and Hammond have made? It's a shockingly no num- low number. Um, uh, like three, four. So the answer is seven, but I'm going to redo seven. these trades. And there's only one that means anything. The that, one that's that what I was going to ask. Is like, are you yeah. counting like, like just moving yeah. little parts around and like draft picks and like stuff like so, that? Like, don't tell me what they are. Markel Fultz is the only one that matters. But then after yeah. that, you have James Ennis at the trade deadline, Takari yeah. Johnson, Rodney Purvis, Jared Vanderbilt, and then two that are like biggish names but not really important. There was the Alfred Payton trade, and then Timofey Mozgov for Bismack Biombo. This is a team that just doesn't really do anything, right? Like, look at all of the guys on this roster. They've had Evan Fournier forever. They've had Vucevic forever. You know, they drafted Aaron Gordon in 14, and we've been trying to trade him ever since. They've just sort of been standing still. And I think, you know, you're right. You got into this. Every team wants Aaron Gordon because we all look at that roster and we say, this is not working on a high-level winning standpoint. But there are pieces here that on other teams could, and Gordon is kind of the poster boy of that. So they've started, I mean, coming into yesterday, they looked great. They were undefeated. Do you think that that hot start is going to change their perspective? Because I came into this season thinking, okay, now's the time. Isaac is out. Augustine is gone. This is clearly a team that, if not, is going to tank outright, is going to retool in some significant way because they're not making the playoffs with this roster. Then they start 4-0. and I'm a little worried that that's going to just empower this front office to keep everybody forever. And Aaron Gordon is going to play his whole career there. And then his children are going to play there. And his children's children are going to play there. <laughs> so do you think 4-0 and is enough for them to keep all these guys together? Has anything changed? What's going through your head? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this podcast after they got absolutely obliterated by the Sixers um, last night rather than when they were 4-0. and Because I don't think 4-0 and should really change anything. I, I don't think that they're going to be like fooled by that either. I think, you know, if we're we're talking about them being like 20 and 5 or something, then sure, like they become like a buyer rather than a seller. They they try to win now all that stuff. I just don't really see any chance of that happening. Um I I do wonder because I agree like I I was kind of on a similar page to you, not necessarily going into the season, but like Going into the offseason, I thought, like, if there are deals out there that make sense, I could see them taking a step back intentionally. Like, if there's a Fournier trade out there, I could see it. If there's a Vucevic trade out there, a Gordon trade out there, like, I could see them just saying, you know what, like, we're not going to tank a million times. Like, they clearly don't want to do that organizationally. But maybe you tank for one year, a year, by the way, in which... Their best, I mean, not their best player necessarily, because I, I guess Vucevic is their best player, but like their their most high upside player, probably their most important player, Jonathan Isaac, is like not going to be playing. Um, so and I there's could no home gate revenue either. So making the playoffs means less now than ever. There's that too, and I I wonder if the kind of you know very condensed off season had anything to do. Um, with their relative inaction or if that was just what was going to happen anyway. Because uh, on the one hand, it all seemed to happen so fast. Everybody moved really quickly. On the other hand, like, 
you know, the Magic were done months ago after winning one game in the first round again. So, like, they had a long time to kind of prepare and figure out what they wanted to do. But then once it actually got to free agency time and offseason time, like, it was just madness. It was a complete mess. And some teams did a lot of stuff and other teams did virtually nothing. And the Magic were definitely um, on the latter end of the spectrum there. But... I do think, like, when we go into these kind of conversations of, like, okay, it feels like it's time for the Magic. They're, they should just blow things up now. It's as if the, the choice is simply blow things up or don't, or make trades or don't. And the, the question I always ask is, like, well, what are you getting back? Like, maybe the market for Aaron Gordon or Evan Fournier was not good during this truncated offseason, and maybe... When there's a whole bunch of teams that think they can make it to the finals, like around the trade deadline, there will be teams calling the Magic about all of their guys. And maybe that was the bet that they made. Like, I don't know that they went into the offseason thinking we absolutely adore this roster and want to bring everything back. I, by the way, I don't know that they did that the previous offseason or like the trade deadline before that or any of that. Like, it seems like they want to just keep doing this over and over, but uh, it, it could just be that. The package, the off the offers that they're getting, the trade packages that they're evaluating, when they line it up with like what they think they can get later, it just hasn't been enough for them. And I don't know that this is necessarily going to be the same conversation we are having a year from now. History kind of suggests that it will be. Um, but you know, one example is like Fournier is going to be a free agent next summer. I would be shocked if they just kept him around yet again right so i think like the chances of him being traded before this year's deadline are pretty high the chances of aaron gordon getting traded i don't know like i i seriously don't know and then and one thing that is interesting about aaron gordon is it feels like he has been on the block forever it feels like he's been around forever I, it feels like it's hard to remember the magic without aaron gordon but he's only 25 like he's not he hasn't even started his prime really yet um so I don't think it is like completely crazy for the Magic to have held on to him. I don't think it's completely crazy for them to have, you know, asked for a lot for Aaron Gordon because I think he's a very talented player, even if he has not been completely, you know, maximized in in their system. So they were, as far as the reporting goes, before Portland traded for Robert Covington, they went to Orlando and made a pretty similar offer, which was, Number 16 pick, which in this draft is, I mean, it wasn't a great draft, but it was a deep draft. So that's a fine first round pick. And then a fake future first that could convey in two years, could convey in a million years. You never know. So that says to me that they're not looking at Aaron Gordon as somebody at the very least that they're trying to move. I think they'd be willing to with the right offer, but they didn't look at two first round picks from Portland as the right offer. I don't know who's going to top that, but you're also right. Maybe circumstances change down the line. Now, as far as the 4-0 start goes, or the 4-1 start now goes, the numbers on it are kind of wild. I don't know how this is statistically possible, but this is just, to me, firm proof that regression was going to come and now has come. Their shot selection through five games, they are 30th in shots in the restricted area, 30th in threes, first in mid-range jumpers, and first in paint shots not in the restricted area. That is like... I think that's Daryl Morey's personal hell. I don't know how you could possibly choose to do that, yet they have, and they've won four of the first five games. 
And we're starting to see some of the regression on that, right? They were shooting over 40% on wide open threes to the first four games. Then they shoot 25% against Philly and get absolutely killed. So I don't necessarily know that they were ever going to get to a point where they should change their entire organizational strategy. But at 4-0, you start to sweat a little bit and say, well, it's a shortened season. So four wins mean more now than ever. So they don't now, you know, getting to 42 and 42 is significantly easier when you're getting to 36 and 36 and you already start with a four game lead. I would be kind of worried that they get to 500 at the trade deadline and talk themselves into keeping everybody. But hopefully now this regression comes, which we started to see against Philly and maybe gets them to reconsider a little bit. But honestly, during this hot start, it's not like Aaron Gordon has been playing great. Now he's playing on a hurt hamstring. So take that for what you will. The shooting has been all over the place, 14.3% on threes, but over 60% on twos. He's not playing that many minutes. The net rating is off, but that's because he was minus 23 against Philly. So I'm now starting to wonder because we've seen throughout the years, we've seen the value on Gordon from an outside perspective change wildly, right? Like Portland is a really nice barometer for this because they've been involved in fake Gordon trades forever. They make the two first round pick offer before that way before that people would talk about maybe CJ McCollum for Aaron Gordon. Now that is a total pipe dream. Then last year there was that moment where Anthony Simons looked good. And we're thinking would Portland give up Simons to finally get Gordon and fix their forward issues. The value has changed so much in a vacuum. Say you're a team that thinks it's an Aaron Gordon away from either a championship or championship level contention this year, or a sustained run of being very good over the next five years. What does Aaron Gordon cost? I think probably a first and a player who is younger but demonstrably worse than him <laughs> is probably what I have that I exact think. offer coming up a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, like so, something something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think his value has fluctuated precisely because like. As he gets older, I think the upside starts to mean a little less to people and they start to look at, you know, what role does he want to play? And that's a conversation that we could have, too, is like, what would he be in a different system? He's gotten used to having quite a bit of offensive responsibility in Orlando. Um, This is a team that was trying to play him at the three for a while and probably would still be doing that if Isaac could stay healthy. Um, he has put in a ton of work each summer to kind of work on his ball handling, to work on his off the dribble shooting, to work on his playmaking, his passing, his spot up shooting, all of this stuff. And there has been progress in all of these areas, but he has not become great at any of this stuff. So I think there was this idea before that Gordon could be a star. Um, And then I think it turned into sort of a, like, all right, well, he's probably not going to be a star, but maybe he could be, like, a star in his role type, like a super role player. Um, But then there are questions about, will he accept that? And isn't that what he should be for Orlando anyway? Why is he doing all of this extra stuff? And, you know, I I am not, like, a, a zealot either way on this conversation either because I sort of think, like, the point of Aaron Gordon is that he can be that super role player type. But like the reason why you call him a super role player is because he comes with a little more because you do let him do a little bit of playmaking. You let him, you know, 
if if he can get a switch and like go against a smaller player, let him use his physicality against them. Let him put the ball on the floor against a closeout and like find the open guy because like he can do that kind of thing. He's not going to be your lead playmaker like it seemed like he wanted to be a few years ago. He's not going to be some sort of facilitator guy. But he is good at more than just being an energy guy, athlete, like screen setter, lob threat, like multi-positional defender. Like he can do all of that stuff and then he can do a little extra. And that's why I like him. And I just think as long as all of the extra stuff is not like a primary part of his job, but is rather like a bonus um, and he has better players around him and better spacing around him, because that's the big thing that has always driven me crazy about watching Magic for the past few years. Just the spacing has been bad. Like, I think he could still have a lot of the potential that we talked about with him a few years ago. It's just because he has kind of sort of stagnated, I guess in the current role that he's had on this team that has refused to make super meaningful changes, especially when it comes to getting more offensive options. Like I think the perception of him has changed when to the degree that the player has changed, I think he's honestly just pretty much gotten better. So I think the idealized version of him, and he's never going to be this valuable, but from a role perspective, speaking of the super role player, that sounds a lot to me like Draymond Green, right? Like you're playing the four, you're doing a fair bit of playmaking, but not point guard level playmaking. You're scoring, but you're not scoring 20 points a game. You're doing a lot. You're doing a ton on defense. You're switching. You're maybe playing from some small ball five. You're a pick and roll threat as the roller. You're maybe hitting threes. I mean, Draymond is obviously a mixed history there. But when you look at each of those skills in a vacuum, I don't know how feasible it is for him to be that guy because you're doing so much projecting. And that projection is there. You're right. They've had terrible spacing. They've never had even a close to league average starting point guard. So it's hard to really say how much he would be affected by even just a coherent offensive system with basic star level talent around him. But like this idea that he's going to go somewhere and suddenly become a really good role player that's shooting a high percentage. I'm not sure that's true. He's never shot league average from three. His career high is 34.9%. You know, we'd like to think of him as this pick and roll threat. He's never rolled more than 56 times in a season. I, I, you've seen it, right? Like there are moments where you see him make a great short roll pass or he goes up for a huge lob dunk. Like it's there, but it's always there in such small volume that I don't know how realistic it would be to project that onto a contender. And we keep trying to put him on contenders through trades, but he's now, he has two years left on his contract. It's a fantastic contract. 18.1 million this year, 16.3 million next year. That descending value really matters, but he's going to be a free agent in 2022 to this point, and this will probably change, I don't know that there's an obvious team out there for him because so many teams where I might like him are going to lose their cap space by then. You know, like yeah. Dallas would be a fit that I'd really like, but that's when the Luka extension kicks in. Atlanta's a fit that I'd like, that's when Trey Young's extension kicks in, et cetera, et cetera. So he, let's say he finishes this time in Orlando, his contract expires. I think there's going to be a big push from the media folks like us to say, Let's get him to a contender. Let's let him be this super role player. But how interested in, in that is he, right? Like, we don't really know because he wants to do all of that extra stuff. In Orlando, he's been empowered to do all that extra stuff. But we don't know. Is, that, is he doing that out of necessity? Is he doing that because that's what he wants to be as a player? It's really hard to tell. I, I don't have a good answer for it. But if you think about the sort of teams that could use him, 
it's almost any team, right? Like I did a yeah. thought experiment here where I looked at just before you factor in like the realistic, the realistic ability to trade for him, who are teams that would want to give up Aaron Gordon level assets to get Aaron Gordon? My list is over 10 teams long. Like most teams in the league can use an Aaron Gordon. Yeah. I mean, I, I think primarily because like, and, and honestly, like I think we should have talked about this earlier is like the primary reason you want Aaron Gordon is he's an incredible defender. And I'm not sure people even realize how good he is on that end because, you know, I I think people understand that he is like, you know, when he was younger, he was kind of this like awesome theoretical defender because he was this insane athlete. He was big. He was quick. He was long. But I really think over the past few years, like just with getting more reps on the NBA level, with, you know, playing for a few different coaches, including a guy who I think is an excellent defensive coach in Steve Clifford, like, he has become, like, an absolute stopper. And he can guard pretty much anyone at any position. You know, my, like, we say that, and it's like, I, no, I don't think he's... You'd just, like, throw him on a point guard as his primary matchup. No, I don't think you would do that against, like, you know, Joel Embiid or, like, Jokic or someone like that. But, like, I mean, he can switch on to a point guard. And if he has to take Jokic for a couple of minutes, he's strong enough to kind of deal with that kind of guy. Like, I I think the primary reason is that, like, everybody wants these big dudes that can guard star wing players and that can be versatile um, and that can, you know, be a good help defender and a good individual defender. And I think he really is that now. I think, you know, he doesn't, he's not one of these guys that gets a lot of buzz for, like, the all-defensive team and all that stuff. But, like... I think that might be in his future, um, especially if he gets out of Orlando, um, because I think he is that talented defensively. Um, and, you know, you, you're talking about some teams. Uh, I want to throw one at you. Is Denver on your list? Um, Denver is on because, my list. It, he, I know that's been your favorite destination for him for as long as I've known you. That is my favorite destination, and even more so now, because I think that team clearly needs... Uh, a little bit more of a defensive bump and he would solve a lot of their problems. I think, um, you know, he could play kind of that role that Jeremy Grant played for them last year. I thought Jeremy Grant like played a little too much three uh, for them. And Aaron Gordon might be in that same position where I'm a little annoyed that he's playing the three, but like realistically, I see him as a four and a small ball five and, um, I think it would be really interesting to see him play in a system where, you know, everything runs through the big guy, but also kind of everybody has the freedom to cut and to make plays. And it helps if you are a smart player and it's not the most, you know, static, predictable offense. Like Orlando's a very conservative offensive team. I, I, I don't think they do anything like, crazy or like anything silly and with the exception of this shot selection issue so far this year but I think in general like they take care of the ball they get pretty good shots they have devised a system that like makes for a decent like kind of functional offense despite the fact that for the past few years they've had to cover up for a glaring lack of offensive talent Denver is just not that at all they're a very high powered offense they run cool stuff they don't really look like any team in the league aside from maybe Miami and it would just be kind of weird and cool to see how Aaron Gordon functioned in that system and see him cutting and getting easy dunks and see him 
making, you know, reads when he's getting the ball with an advantage already rather than having having to create one. Um, but again, to bring it back where, where I kind of started this whole little spiel, like just defensively, I think he would be phenomenal for them. So I don't know if you want to start a theoretical Nuggets package with like a Will Barton or a Gary Harris or uh, some other combination. Like I, I think Bull Bull is pretty much the like ideal player that would fit the the archetype of who the magic would theoretically be interested in right we're gonna um, we're gonna send another so, poor young big man to orlando <laughs> i'm just saying like if you look at the track record of that front office they absolutely love these like super long dudes um who they can just get in their development system and try to turn them into something like interesting and something cool I, it would be pretty damn weird if they had bull bull and mo bamba on the same team yeah, but like i don't have the Mo'Bamba idea suffered enough let's i i i want this to happen that's that's just my perspective i i love the fit i think offensively denver is very much a you eat what you kill sort of system if you're not moving off of the ball if you're not playing within the system you're just not going to get shots i mean you will because Jokic is Jokic and he'll find you shots but it's very egalitarian when your best player can have a great game where he scores eight points, right? Like the guys who really thrive in Denver are the ones who buy in. Uh, Michael Porter is really the only guy on that team that they kind of force feed shots for. And even he's getting better with that with time. I like this idea that you send Aaron Gordon to a team where you have to be the super role player. If you're going to fit in the defensive fit is great. He's better than Jeremy Grant pretty comfortably on that end. I would say, I guess he would be the four Porter would be the long-term three, which I mean, Michael Porter is not a very good defender. I don't think he probably ever will be. I mean, he has the tools, but we've seen nothing on that end to suggest he's going to be a good defender. But that's a lot of size to have if Michael Porter Jr. is your long-term three. Now, as far as the package goes, I do think Orlando would like Bowl Bowl. I wish they wouldn't because I just don't want to inflict that on Bowl Bowl. I think the ideal package for Orlando would be something involving a lead ball handler. Denver doesn't really have one of those to spare. So... Well, I mean, they do have two. I mean, they have maybe the best backup point guard or one of the best backup point guards in the NBA and Monte Morris. How do you think he scales, though? I mean, I don't know that you necessarily want to make him your primary guy, but like maybe the Magic think Cole Anthony is that guy for them anyway. I think between the two of them, they're pretty much taken care of at the point guard position. And they also have Fultz and MCW who are not... I, I like MCW is essentially a wing now. Fultz is essentially a two guard, but like runs a lot of pick and rolls. Like, I don't know what position you want to call them, but like, I think they would have plenty of ball handling and plenty of playmaking in the backcourt. Um, if they did that. And the other idea is like, you know, I, I don't know if the magic would be super interested in Campazzo, who's 29. Um, but I'm just, I'm just saying if, if you're talking about playmaking, like Denver does have, two backup point guards right now who I don't think fit super well together just because of the kind of defensive limitations of having two guys that small out there. Um, so that that at least gives you, like, some wiggle room to figure something out. But, I mean, as soon as you put Monte Morris in the deal, then it becomes a little bit trickier in kind of figuring out how to get to an equitable trade because Monte Morris is really, really good. Well, and the other issue they have is he he's extended, right? So he has the poison pill in his contract. So trading for now. is pretty yes. hard. Yeah, for yes. now. But I would guess Paul Millsap's expiring contract would be 
the easiest um, salary filler in this. He's expiring. He's somebody that probably isn't a part of Denver's future. So maybe you do something with like Composo and Millsap or Millsap and Bowl or Millsap and a pick. There's definitely a workable package there. I think the fit is great. I think he fits the timeline, obviously. He's, the fact that he has a descending contract is valuable to Denver specifically because they're going to start having luxury tax issues sooner than later. And that front or that ownership group has never been the sort of ownership group that's going to pay the tax. So going down for a year probably helps them. And then eventually when they are paying the tax, if you can delay it a few years, then maybe you can at least delay the repeater clock a little bit. So I do like that bit. I have a couple other ones. The first one that comes to mind for me is Boston because they have this giant Gordon Hayward trade exception. They, I think it's 20, 28 million, 28.5, something in that range. They have all of their own picks. Now, this is the first time in, you know, since the Stone Age that Boston hasn't had somebody else's pick to dangle. But with their own picks, I think they could get something done. They obviously have a ton of young guys, Lankford, the two Williams, Neesmith, Pretch, um, Peyton Pritchard. They have guys that they can send Orlando. But the reason I like this fit so much is that Boston very clearly had a chance to get Miles Turner in the offseason and said no, which to me says we are just not interested in making a major investment in a center. We either want a guard or a forward in this Gordon Hayward salary slot, whether it was through a trade, through the trade exception, through free agency, whatever. So Gordon fits the bill for me. I mean, their defense is obviously already very good and adding Gordon to it would make it even better. But we saw this in the playoffs. If you have Kemba Walker as one of your five closers, that's a problem defensively. If you can shore up the other four spots, I think it's a great fit. I think Brad Stevens would have a lot of fun with him, especially you know, in the DHO game, running more pick and roll through him. I think that would be a really nice fit. What do you think about Boston? I think it'd be really cool. I think it, it's a little interesting just kind of thinking of how their lineups would work. I think Stevens would do a lot of weird stuff. I think he'd play him all over the place. Um, it would, like, potentially make them just huge. Like, <laughs> If J.R. Brown is your shooting guard, like, that's, that's a big team. That's what I'm thinking. Like, because one of the cool things and like the Boston was able to do a bit last year um, is like when Kemba was not on the court, they could do these lineups with like Marcus Smart, Tatum, Brown, Grant Williams, and like whoever else, um, maybe Hayward, like whatever, whoever you want and just switch literally everything. And Gordon opens up those possibilities again. And you could even kind of like, you could start that way if you wanted to like, Depending on the matchup, you can start Gordon as a small ball five, or if you want to start him at the four and Tatum at the three, Brown at the two, like maybe that's your long-term look is like Kemba, um, Jalen, Tatum, Gordon, and then you're like Thompson, Tice, whoever else they have at center over the next few years. Maybe it's Grant Williams. Um, Maybe it's Robert Williams. And then you're this, like, crazy, crazy versatile team at, like, two through five. Um, and then you you still have Marcus Smart as your as your sixth man. Um, or, like, alternatively, like, if you want to get really weird um, and you could close games this way, is, like, you slot, you, you do Marcus Smart at the two. Um, and then you you just size down in the, in the front court, right? Like Aaron Gordon steps into like the role that Grant Williams was playing at the end of you know Game Seven of the Raptors series, where he's now it's Aaron Gordon switching on to Fred VanVleet at at the end there. Um, so, so I I think 
it would be fun. It would make sense. Stevens would go crazy with it. I do wonder, though, um, and this gets us back to the conversation about, like, what does Aaron Gordon want? What does he see himself as? Because I think a few years ago, he had these dreams of, like, being a Paul George type. And, like, the Celtics have two of those. And then they have this ball-dominant point guard. So, so I don't know where that leaves him. I don't know how excited he would be about it, but I would be excited to, to kind of see how it worked. Well, speaking of that ball-dominant point guard, I hate to say this because he's a max player and he's everybody's favorite teammate. If I were Boston, I would be looking into ways of not having to close playoff games with Kemba Walker. I'm not saying I would do that as a blanket statement. There are certainly matchups where you can. But Toronto and Miami both really exposed him on defense. And I think the ideal version of Boston late in playoff games, especially as Kemba ages, would probably be something where Jason Tatum is creating most of the offense. And if this Jalen Brown jump is real, you probably have enough offense to get away without having Kemba on the floor. So if you get Aaron Gordon, suddenly you have Tatum, Brown, Gordon, Marcus Smart, four of the five slots are filled. Put in, insert your Daniel Tice, Tristan Thompson, center X, whatever, or maybe you go with another shooter and maybe Neesmith develops, or maybe you really like Peyton Pritchard. I don't know. Maybe you have another ace defender somewhere on the bench. I think Boston would really benefit from not having to close playoff games with Kemba. They certainly can. There are certainly matchups where it would be advisable, but as Toronto and Miami proved, it's not ideal, especially as he gets older. But yeah, I mean, look at all of the guys who have left Boston in recent years. Al Horford, Gordon Hayward, Kyrie Irving, like it's not it's not easy to fit into that organization given all of the mouths they have to feed. And if Gordon really does want to be, I don't he, I don't think Paul George isn't realistic anymore. But if he wants to be somebody that's going to be a high volume shooter or high volume scorer, that's going to be really hard in Boston, where at a minimum he would be fourth on the offensive pecking order, maybe fifth because Marcus Smart has those games where he decides. I'm going to shoot it 19 times. There's nothing you can do about it. So yeah, you're right. That's, that's a, that's a fit issue. And the other team I wanted to talk about kind of is in a similar position and that's Minnesota because Minnesota has one of the worst defenses in the NBA and probably will perpetually. They're also starting Jake Lehman at the four, which I don't think is something you should do if you plan to win NBA games. This is the younger player that is worse than Aaron Gordon plus first round pick package. Malik Beasley. I mean, obviously he, is not a great piece to be trading for right now, given his legal situation, but he's a great shooter. He's young. He's team controlled for three years on a, maybe not great contract, but not a killer contract either. So maybe Malik Beasley with a first round pick with some protections in the future. And if you're Minnesota, that gives you your core, right? You say we are going forward with D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Aaron Gordon, and Carl Anthony towns. And we're going to see what that gets us. That's a fit. I really like. I think it's it's hard because, like, I don't know why Orlando does that because, like, I I understand like, yeah, you're losing Fournier Beasley. Like, my God, do they need his spacing? Yes, that would be nice. Um, but I just I think Gordon's a better player, and the pick would have to be pretty good. But the Minnesota's pick this year is already accounted for, and they might be pretty good. Um, going forward. <laughs> you sure have, about that? Like, it, I'm no, not I mean, if they have Gordon, then they might suddenly be pretty good. Like, I think he, like, I, I'll tell you what, like, I love the idea of them getting Gordon. 
I don't know that they have an easy path to getting him, but I would love to see it because he's like exactly the sort of player that I want them to have on their team that they don't have right now. It would be a little better if he could shoot better than he does, but whatever, that's fine. Like you take the guy who is that much better defensively and has some issues shooting. You have the best shooting five ever, and you have a really good off the dribble shooter running pick and rolls with him. You, you can deal with, Aaron Gordon not being the stretchiest power forward, but they just, they desperately need dudes at the two, three, and four positions that can, you know, make things happen as a help defender that can guard the opposing team's best playmakers um, that can be disruptive with their athleticism and their length. Like, just all of the stuff that Gordon is good at, like, it, like, that would be kind of a dream acquisition, I think, for them. If they're trying to be a serious team, if they're trying to make a push, they need players like that. And I think he's in that sweet spot. Or like, he's 25 years old. Like, he is right on the same timeline as their other two guys. So, like, I I love it from that perspective. I'm just, like, I'm not as psyched on it from Orlando's perspective. But I don't know how, the, how much that even matters. Like, I wasn't even really thinking about that when I was talking about the Boston situation. So, so. Here's my pitch for Orlando. What if you took one of the really late Minnesota picks, like 25, 26, 27, when Carl Anthony Towns maybe won't be there? I mean, you'd have to haggle over protections because Minnesota's not sending an unprotected 2026 pick. Like, they wouldn't give that up for basically anybody. But maybe there's a way you could negotiate down that, where that's attainable, right? Like, Colin and I talk about this all the time with the Warriors, when we've, who we've tried to fix on multiple occasions on this podcast. Mm-hmm. The late stage Warriors picks when Curry and Draymond and Clay are going to be really old, those are quietly very valuable. And we're seeing more of a run on those in general in trades. I mean, New Orleans tried to do that with Milwaukee and it kind of blew up in their face with Giannis signing the extension. I feel like for most NBA teams, you can pinpoint some point on their trajectory in the next seven years where you say, this team probably isn't going to be great at this specific point in their history. Maybe that's the time we try to take one of their picks and get the value that we need in this trade. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not saying they don't have a path toward getting it done. I, I'm just saying I am like, I am very excited about that potential fit in Minnesota. Um, and the other side of it, like, it's not obvious to me how it could work. But I mean, Be- Beasley isn't a bad place to start. I mean, from, just from a positional perspective, like. Yeah, like they they could use some knockdown shooters there, particularly because I doubt Fournier will be on the roster next year. Um, it's just you know he's not the greatest defender. Um, he's not the most reliable playmaker, but I mean he can he can get buckets. He he can score for you, and I think he if you're just looking literally for a guy that is not Fournier but kind of can do what Fournier does um, and is younger, then yes, sure, like that that makes sense. Um, and then. the key to making it work is like what you do beyond that to make it worth their while. And maybe there's something to be done there. Like I, I I do, I do really like the way you're thinking with um, Gordon being their kind of like, you know, switchy versatile um, kind of finisher more than a playmaker uh, kind of, you know, guy that actually connects uh, Russell and Towns and Edwards by like, doing what those guys are not necessarily good at. So there's one more team that fits that role pretty well and is actually in a position to win right now, 
The issue is their trade kind of just fell through thanks to injury, which is Brooklyn, because Spencer Dinwiddie for Aaron Gordon was just one of those super obvious trades that had been sitting and for years. The- like, yes. I, I've been writing about like those two guys and D'Angelo even back before he left in free agency and they replaced him with Kyrie. Like, I mean, I thought D'Angelo for Gordon would have worked, too. Um, I mean, we are both on the we were before the injury anyway on the bandwagon that Spencer Dinwiddie on a team built around Spencer Dinwiddie is like a borderline all-star point guard. Like if you give him a lot of spacing, say you, maybe you don't want him to be your number one option, but if you say you're the point guard, you're the primary ball handler, you have shooting around you, you have another star somewhere else on the court is a better player than even he's shown in Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, look, he almost made it last year. It was really a matter of timing that he didn't make it last year. And it was really a matter of timing that, Russell did make it as an injury replacement um, the year before that. So, I mean, I'm not going to bring this back to like a 2018-19 podcast where we, like I, you know, argue passionately in favor of Dinwiddie over D'Angelo Russell. But, I mean, I could do that if you wanted me to. I don't feel like that's this podcast. But That's not even an argument. I just like Spencer Dinwiddie better. He's a better overall player. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I that that's how I felt at the time, and that's still how I feel. And, uh, you know, maybe the injury changed to that. I don't know. I hope Spencer comes back and he's the same player that he was. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, that would be, like, the whole question about Brooklyn, like, coming into the year based on their start, all of it, it's just how good are they going to be defensively? Steve Nash has talked endlessly about, you know, in training camp, we didn't really do that much offense. It's just defense, defense, defense. I know that we have to get stops. We have to be a defensive-minded team. It has to be part of our identity. We're going to be an aggressive defensive team. We want to force turnovers. We want to get out and run. And you watch them, and you see, like, of course they want to force turnovers. They're, like, the best transition offense I've ever seen in my life. Like, they're insane. Um, But... I mean, go back and watch that Nets-Hawks game from a couple of nights ago. I don't think, like, I think you're looking at two teams that, like, mirror each other in terms of, like, they're insanely talented offensively, but the defense is, like, clearly a question mark. And some matchups are going to be really bad for the Nets defensively. It's not that they don't have any defenders at all on the roster. It's just that it's not the most versatile defensive team. And... I don't know, like, despite the fact they're really deep, like, I don't know that some of their better defenders are even going to get a ton of minutes. Like, Bruce Brown has, like, barely been in the rotation, um, and he might be the best perimeter defender. I think he is the best perimeter defender that they have. Like, we've seen KD play some great defense. I don't think you can count on him to do that every single night in the regular season. So, yeah, if you have somebody like Aaron Gordon on, on that team, then all of a sudden, like, I think all of the stuff that the Nets had been talking about, the stuff that they want to do, that they're trying to do with this, the personnel that they have actually becomes a lot more attainable. Um, he just Timothy Luau Cabarro over Bruce Brown is going to be one of my crusades for the entire year. I don't understand why Bruce Brown isn't getting minutes on that team. He fits them so perfectly. He's not a good shooter, but he's a very good corner three-point shooter, and that's all you really need out of him, right? Yeah, um, I think Nash is going to, like... Look, it, it it was TLC. It might be Shamit. It might be Brown. Like I, I think he can experiment with that stuff. Um, I think a lot of the time it's going to be Lavert closing games in that spot, regardless. Um, but yeah, I mean that. I think that decision that they had to make when Dinwiddie got hurt, and even the decision that 
they had to make going into the year about like Karras versus Levert and like how are they going to handle the second unit? How much are they going to stagger KD and Kyrie? All all of this stuff, like these are all little microcosms of the broader issue with the Nets is that they might be the deepest team in the NBA, but they're not a super balanced one, and they have to make all these decisions that involve um, sacrificing offense for defense or vice versa. And that doesn't. I'm not saying that is like this is like damning of them. Like, look at how Eric Spolster managed his rotation on the way to the finals last year. That's what the entire thing was. Like, that's, in a lot of ways, that's what coaching is in the NBA. So that's not super unique. In this respect, I think it's just, it, they're kind of extreme because their ceiling is so high and they're just so good offensively when they have all of their weapons out there. Um, and that, that's why it makes a guy like Gordon seem like, like just ever more attractive to a team like that. But as you said, leading into this, like the Dinwiddie for Gordon trade was the one that made sense. And I don't know that there's one that makes a ton of sense in the absence of that. I think that that's when you start talking about like, well, like maybe Jared Allen or something like that. But then like, does Orlando want that? Cause like they have Vucevic on the roster now. And I think like they, they have a, center that I think they, they still care about in Mobamba. They have a good backup in Kim Birch. Like, as currently constructed, that does not make sense. But maybe a future version of the Magic would make something like that make sense. I don't well, know. The trade to me is Torian Prince, who has oh, – he's only – his contract only goes through next season, so he's just filler there. And then you're doing the Minnesota thing where you're sending late-stage future first-round picks where you don't want Brooklyn's pick in 2021, but you might want it in 2026. So maybe you could get Brooklyn to give you a lightly protected deep future first round pick for him. The issue there is that Brooklyn doesn't seem to have given up on James Harden. So giving up a, a major piece of salary filler and B a very valuable future first round pick they might need for something else is probably a non-starter for them. But I don't know if I were Orlando and I could get a 2025, 2026 pick with Prince, I would pretty heavily consider that. I like the fit for two other reasons. First, Brooklyn is really, they might have more aggregate shooting than any team I've ever seen, right? Like they don't have the high, like the highest highs of Golden State with Durant, Curry, and Thompson. But beyond those three, Golden State was always pretty light on shooting. That is not the case for Brooklyn, where after Irving and Durant, it's, oh, here's Joe Harris. Here's TLC. Like even Karis LeVert is sneaking up to like a league average shooter. There's, they have so much shooting everywhere that I mean, they can play just three of the five and go five out, and then, like, I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do. Yeah. Imagine if Aaron Gordon is the worst shooter in your closing lineup. Like, that is kind of mind boggling. And the other, yeah. the other thing I really like about that is they've been playing Kevin Durant at the four to start games, and there's been talk. Steve Nash has talked about playing him at the five. I'd kind of like to protect the guy physically that's coming off the torn Achilles. Maybe that's just me. I would much rather have Durant playing three and Gordon playing four just for the sake of protecting your biggest investment. So that's the other reason I really like that fit. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's... I mean, Durant at the five is an interesting thing in theory. Um, I think we've we've seen it a little bit, I think, in the preseason, um, but not for long. I don't think it's happened in the, in the regular season yet. Um it seems like a break class, break glass in case of emergency situation for the playoffs. But Nash has talked about it. He's talked about it, and I think, look, I mean, he's talked about playing Durant at the one, um, but I think he's pretty much exclusively been a power forward 
at least in what I've seen of the Nets in the regular season. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the whole appeal of Aaron Gordon is he makes your weirdo lineups possible. He allows you to get more shooting on the court because you can play guys who you're not super excited about them defensively um, and he will kind of protect you. Um, but yeah, I, I think to respond to what you, what you said earlier about kind of Orlando and maybe want, being interested in some like 2026 pick or something like that, like I get it and I get why you would make that deal. I just, none of Orlando's actions have told me that that deal is what they're looking for right now. But I guess, like I said earlier, like you probably maybe, need more job security to do that. Right. Like may, maybe at a certain point, it's just like, yeah, like things are not going well this season. We're just, we're finally going to do that. Um, and maybe that is enough. It's just at that point, then you're talking about, well, what are the offers for other teams? Like, is there a way that they can get a down the road pick from somebody else plus a young player that they're actually interested in rather than just this contract that they don't care about in Tory and Prince? But um, I, who knows? Maybe, maybe I like Tory and Prince. Like, theoretical Tory and Prince is also an interesting trade candidate. I don't know if he's one worth dedicating the entire podcast to. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's certainly like a rationale, um, from their side to, to, to pull that one off too. James, Colin and I once spent 10 minutes talking about Rodney Hood. So I, I wouldn't rule out an entire Tory and Prince podcast at some point, but I've taken up too much of your time as it is. James, this was a blast. Do you have anything you want to plug? I don't, I don't have anything I want to plug. Um, but I will say Aaron Gordon, like I remember talking about him as a trade candidate, like for like with some friends from Toronto, like before they traded for Serge Ibaka. Um, I remember talking about him like pretty soon after the Nets got D'Angelo Russell. Like it is hilarious that we are doing this podcast now. Um, I remember when he signed his descending contract the whole discussion was, well, th this means they're going to trade him. Like, he's probably getting traded by, like, this year's trade deadline. And then every trade deadline, like, a lot of the, these, you know, like, when we come up on the trade deadline, I write a story that's, like, X players who could be traded. And, like, going into the offseason every time, I write some sort of primer. And I just feel like I've written the freaking, like, Aaron Gordon could be traded scenario, like, a million times. That at this point, like, we, we have talked about all of these things, like... Of course, if he goes to the Nuggets and I get to see that, that like I would love that, and it would be interesting to see him in a new environment. And like I have been one of the people, not, surely not the only person. Like Zach Lowe has said on his pod a million times, like he is just he desperately wants like Aaron Gordon to be freed and just to see him play somewhere else. Like there's a part of me that's still there, but there's another part of me that just thinks it would be hilarious if they just keep him forever, and that like the next iteration of the Orlando Magic. Features like nobody is on this current roster, maybe Isaac, whatever. But like, just Aaron Gordon is just the one constant. He is just there. He he'll be there like JJ Barea. Maybe he'll leave for a year and go to Minnesota and hate it, and then he'll come back to Orlando where he is comfortable. And just what a great coming home montage that would be. <laughs> yes, like just at this point, like I, I, we have just been discussing this for so long that like, I mean, both on this podcast and it, in the course of several years. Um, it would be really funny to me if he just becomes like Mr. Orlando.
I think the I joke would... I always make is there are cave paintings somewhere of like trade machine scenarios involving Aaron Gordon. Like I remember even when he was picked, he was picked ahead of Dante Exum in 2014. And there were a lot of people going like, why would the magic do this? Dante Exum is such, has so much more potential. And like basically ever since then, we've been questioning how Orlando has used Aaron Gordon, both on the floor and as a trade asset. And frankly, his value has gone down. They've waited too long to trade him if they were planning to, but just because this is team inertia, I think you're right. I think there's a very real chance that he just finishes his career in Orlando or plays there until he's like 36 and then signs a one-year minimum contract with a contender down the line. So this is just, it's a very depressing situation. We've been talking about getting him to a winning team forever. And we just spent an hour talking about trade scenarios with him. And I'm still not convinced it's ever going to happen. Hey man, Dante Exum had a really good first summer league game. That team, when we're talking about Dante Exum summer league game, that seems like the place to close. So James, <laughs> this was a pleasure. You're welcome back on anytime. I know you don't have anything to plug, but James is always writing on, he's always working on something. So he's always talking to some AAU coach in some tiny town in Michigan about some player that's about to break out. Mm-hmm. So read James on CBS sports. Um, like subscribe the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I think we're up on Google Play now. Um, anywhere else that you listen to podcasts, like subscribe, etc. Share with your friends. Force them to listen. But that's going to do it for us today. Colin will be back next week. James, thank you for coming on. <laughs>